Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We're going to continue on. We are in week 743 of our series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're we're doing a a study on the Holy Spirit. And uh, so we've been just looking at different facets. And I want to do a little bit of review and kind of set this up. We've been talking about how there are three primary manifestations of the Spirit of God in our life. Or three primary uh, impartations, things that the Lord gives us. And there's under these three headings, there's a whole lot... That can be unpacked, but there's three primary things, three primary works that the Holy Spirit does in our life. The Holy Spirit is the agent by which we grow in God. What Jesus bought, the Spirit brought. There's an old saying, God thought it, Jesus bought it, and the Spirit brought it. And the Spirit is growing us up. He's, he is that agent. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the, the agent that matures us. Uh, in cooperation with him, we grow in God. And, and part, the, the three primary things that he gives to us, and underneath those headings are a number of other things, but there's wisdom, power, and love. Now, we talk a lot about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our Pentecostal charismatic circles. We are a Pentecostal charismatic church. We are not cessationists. Cessationism believes that the the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, the activity of the Spirit of God in that regard, ceased with the death of the original 12 apostles. We don't believe that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still works in the same way. He can't divorce himself from that activity. He is, he is God, and he, he is a miraculous God, and he still invades our life in that manner. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is the, avid, or the, the agent by which that activity happens in our life. And so we need to learn to cooperate with the Spirit. We need to be taught by the Spirit. And so there's three things that he gives us. He gives us wisdom, he gives us power, and he gives us love. Now, as Pentecostals, often we will emphasize the power element. And that, we find that in Acts chapter 2 and other passages where Jesus said, uh, tarry until you are endued with power. That's the King James Version. He said, wait on the Father until you receive the Father's blessing, and you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Now that power is the ability to do with God things we wouldn't do without him. It's the miraculous power from God to know things and to do things that we wouldn't know and be able to do without God coming on us. That's where we see words of knowledge, words of wisdom, uh, discern, discerning of spirits, uh, miracles, signs, and wonders. All of those fall under that heading of power. We also have emphasized a lot within the last 20 years this impartation of love that has come with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see that in Romans chapter 5. He says, it's by the Spirit that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. One of the primary functions of the Spirit of God in the believer's life is to make real to us, to reveal to us the Father's love. That's why Romans 8 says that the Spirit causes us to say, Abba, Father. It's Daddy God. It causes us this spontaneous 
eruption, this reciprocal love that is born within us, when we see how much he loves us, we cannot help but respond back with love to him. Jesus said we love him. Why? Because he first loved, well, John said that. Uh, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And the Spirit comes to reveal the love of God to us, and it creates in us a reciprocal love back. We can't help ourselves. We've got to express our love to him. And one of the manifestations of that love is obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. A lot of believers try to obey God, thinking then they'll move into love, when in actuality, what we need is to move into love so that we can walk out in obedience. So we don't white-knuckle our obedience. What we need is we need to encounter the love of God, which will birth a reciprocal love within us, that we will begin to love him back. We are the bride of Christ. Okay, I'm going to get into some politically incorrect material here, okay? So brace yourself. You know, there is a difference between the genders. Men and women are different. I, re- I still have a copy of a Time magazine from about 25 years ago, and the cover story said, there is a difference between men and women, like it's news. Thinking, I'm trusting them for my political commentary. There's a difference between men and women, not only biologically, not only physically, but psychologically. There is such a thing as the feminine soul and the masculine soul. When God made men and women, he made them male and female. There are two expressions of God in the earth and humanity. It says, he made, uh, in the image of God, he made him, male and female, he made them. And there's a masculine and a, and a feminine expression of God. Now, in our relationship with God, he is the husband, we are the bride. It's a little awkward for us guys, but we got to get used to it, okay? we got to learn to love him. Seems like ladies can get into the warfare mode quicker than men can get into the intimacy mode. But the fact is, as the bride of Christ, God has wired us to love him by seeing his love for us. Scripture never tells a woman to love her husband. It says, husbands, love your wives. It says, wives, respect your husbands. It says, submit to your husbands. But it doesn't ever tell a woman to love her husband. Why? Because God has wired a woman to respond to love with love. So gentlemen, if you want your wife to love you, love her. Sow into her love and she will automatically respond that reciprocal love. Because that is... The feminine characteristic. I remember when I was in Bible school, I got out of Teen Challenge and went to this little tiny Bible institute. There were 14 students, 12 guys, two girls. They never, were, never lacked a date. Well, really, there were three girls, I guess. There wasn't there. There were three girls. Two of them were sisters. And there were two brothers in the Bible school I went to, uh, the Womack boys. And they had, they had their eyes on the two girls, the two sisters. And the younger brother liked the older sister, and the older brother liked the younger sister. And they were pursuing them. And the interesting thing was these girls were not interested whatsoever. It was somewhat entertaining to watch. (laughs) But today, they're both married to those girls, and they got these huge families, and they got all these kids. And my respect for the Womack boys grew exponentially as I watched them endure rejection and keep on going. (laughs) And what they did is they won those girls with love. 
They pursued them, and by expressing love and laying down their life in great humility, I might say, that, that finally there was this reciprocation that awakened within the hearts of those girls, and they, they married these two sisters. And that was a little picture of how it works across the board. Men are called to be the initiator that lay down their life and a woman is to be pursued. Matter of fact, I was reading, I've got the works of Shakespeare on my, my shelf somewhere, uh, one of my shelves, and uh, I keep them there because it looks intelligent. I've never read them. But uh, <laughs> you, know, you put them in a prominent place and kind of stand by them every now and then. And, uh, but I did open them one time. Seriously, I, one time, I still remember what it said. I don't know what the play was, but I opened it and it said this. She is a woman, so she is to be wooed. And then she is, she is feminine, so she is to be one. I shut it and I thought, that dude knows women. Put it back on the shelf. Because there's something about the feminine psyche that is supposed to be pursued and won. And there's something about the ma masculine psyche that is to conquer. Not conquer in a club her over in the head and drag her by the hair and say, you're coming home with me. I mean laying down his life to win her. And we see that picture in redemption. Jesus loved us first. And when we have a revelation of his great love for us, we can't help it. It is automatically birthed within our heart. We love him back. So the key to your obedience, the key to you walking in the will of God is not to white knuckle your obedience and grit your teeth and say, I'm going to be obedient. Now, it's good to make that commitment, but understand what you're going to need is you're going to need love birthed in your heart. So that love is no more white-knuckled than your obedience is. What you need to do is you need to get a revelation of his love for you. And when you see his love for you, you will automatically have a reciprocal love for him. And one of the primary works of the Spirit is to reveal that great love. I've got a little buzzing here. That it's to reveal that, the great love God has for us to us. It's one of the primary works of the Spirit of God. And so we need to ask him. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul teaches us to pray that the Spirit of God would come upon us. It was an apostolic prayer. Paul prayed for the body of Christ. That the power of the Spirit would come upon us, not for ministry, but so that we could have a revelation of the love of God, that we would know the height, depth, width, and breadth. Essentially saying the immensity of God's love for us and that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge. We would have an experience of something that we cannot study ourselves into. So we have the love of God, the power of God, but what, the one that has uh, drawn the least attention among believers, I would argue historically, but definitely over the last 20 years, is the impartation of wisdom. There is the wisdom of God that comes to us through the Spirit of God. He is the teacher that's going to lead us into all truth. He is the one that's going to, Jesus told his disciples, he said, there's so much more I wanted to show you guys. This is just before his crucifixion. He said, guys, there's so much more I wanted to teach you, but you couldn't bear it. You couldn't handle it. I wanted to back up the dump truck, pull the lever, and just bury you in truth, but you wouldn't have been able to handle it. So I'm sending another like unto myself, and he's going to incrementally teach you over time as a, and a process what I wanted to give you in a moment as an event and as an encounter. 
That's one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit. And so it's helpful for us to understand. We need to cry out for the power of God because we need his power to do what we're called to do. We need the love of God because it's the love of God that is the foundation to all of it. And it's going to create in us an affection that will knit us to his heart. So we need that. But we, we also need the wisdom of God. We need him to reveal to us the truths, the mysteries of the kingdom. And he longs to do that. And so we cooperate with him. We, we begin to lean on him and we begin to ask him to teach us and instruct us. The Holy Spirit is that indwelling teacher. First John says it to this extreme. He said, you have no need of a teacher for you have an anointing that teaches you. What he's saying is there's an indwelling spirit, the teacher resides within you so that you are not dependent upon any human teacher. That's not to say that we're not to avail ourselves of human teachers because God gives us teachers in Ephesians chapter 4 and other passages. They are gifts to the body of Christ, but what John is telling us is you are not dependent upon them. I don't know about you, but when I first got saved, my first couple of years of walking with the Lord, I always felt like when I would read the Lord, or read the Lord, read the word, I would say to the Lord, I'd get excited. Oh, man, that's, that is powerful. And then I'd have this self-doubt come over me. Well, who am I to know what this says? Who am I to interpret this? I, I, I don't know if this is right. And, and so I didn't feel like I knew what the word said unless I had it anchored and verified by some external expert called a teacher. And early on, I think that's normal. I don't think that's bad. But we need to come to the place where we begin to trust the anointing within us. And we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And, and if, if the revelation you have is, is denied by very, absolutely every teacher you've ever heard of, you might want to look at your revelation again. But the fact is, we have a, a, the Spirit of God within us that is teaching us. And so we talked about that. And then we talked about this. There are two, two primary ways in which the Holy Spirit releases wisdom, power, and love to us as believers. First is the event of impartation, and the second is the process of cultivation. And both of those are valid and necessary for us to embrace. There are times where God will impart to people power, where before they received that power. They, were, they, they weren't functioning at that level in their life. We have many stories of that. In fact, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the initial impartation of power. That's why Jesus told us, wait until you've received the Spirit and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But that impartation, that, that, that event, that encounter, that momentary download of power where it comes upon you and you are a different person, must be followed by the process of cultivation. What you receive in your impartation can be grown through the process of cultivation. What, I, what I'm saying is nobody gets it all right at once. You can grow in power. A lot of people, I, I saw someone the other day, they posted something on Facebook. They were advertising a supernatural school. And all these people started criticizing, oh, I've got to learn from you to flow in the power of God. And I've got to, oh, we've got to come and learn from you how to hear from the Spirit of God. And I thought, what kind of foolishness is this? God gifts teachers. He, he gifts apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to instruct the body of Christ. And for us to get so 
to, to get so to the other end of the pendulum. Yeah, yeah I, have a, I have an anointing within that teach me. I'm not dependent upon them, but I can certainly avail myself to them. And if I get so arrogant that I say I don't need anybody else to give me anything from God, then I'm going to marginalize myself, and at best, I am left with a small measure of the gift of Christ. Scripture is very clear. The fullness of Christ is only found in the body, in the gathering of believers. Ephesians chapter 1, I think it's verse 22. The fullness of the body, the fullness of him. Ephesians chapter 3, right at the end there, he says that it's in, in order for us to move into the fullness, chapter 4 is all about that. This whole passage, we, we emphasize the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The purpose of that fivefold ministry is to bring us together as a body that we're all equipping, we're running on all cylinders, we're all doing our part, so I'm receiving from you, you're receiving from me, and only then do we move into the fullness of him who is the head. The body is connected to the head. The head's already full grown, but the body is still growing. And the only way we can grow into him who is the head, that's the language Paul uses in Ephesians 4. The only way we can do that is to walk together and learn from one another. And so we need this impartation of power, but then we learn how to operate in power. You can learn to prophesy. We say, well, pastor, that's a spiritual gift. Yeah, and it's a gift that can be developed. You can learn to flow in words of knowledge and words of wisdom. You can learn to flow in discerning of spirits. You can learn to flow in these various gifts. And we need to learn. Now, you can't learn it without the Spirit of God. It's not something that can be... You, you need that initial impartation, but then you cultivate that and you grow that and you study and you learn and you figure out, okay, when God speaks to me, this is what I feel and sense and hear. And you step out on that and you learn to flow in God. And so we need to learn the cultivation of the initial impartation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we need to go after these things. The same is true of the love of God. We receive an impartation, an encounter with the love of God. And Paul's very clear in Ephesians chapter 3. There is an encounter that you cannot study yourself into. You're not going to be able to just study the word and conclude, oh, I'm loved. You can do that in measure, but the love of God is beyond your capability to reason yourself into. That's why he says that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. He's saying you have to have an encounter with this thing. It has to happen to you. And when his love is revealed to you in that encounter with the Spirit of God, it begins to take root in the, the soil of your heart. But even then, that, that seed, that little fledgling growth needs to be cultivated. You need to study. You need to practice the love of God. Jude says you need to keep yourself in the love of God. It's a conscious thing. We talked last week. Romans 8 said nothing can separate you from that love. Well, if nothing can separate me from it, why do I have to keep myself in it? Because I can consciously remove myself from the love of God. It doesn't change God's affections toward me. It changes my ability to walk in the enjoyment of those affections and the effect that it has upon me. When I know I am loved by God, when I'm walking in an awareness that I am his son, that he's proud of me, that he's not merely tolerating me, but he's up in, up in heaven celebrating me as his son, when I walk in that, it makes me walk differently. 
I walk in freedom. I walk in victory. I walk encouraged. I walk in obedience because I don't want to hurt his father's heart. But if the enemy can slide in that old lie that God is tolerating me, he's disappointed in me, he's feeling impatient with me, that lie about the character of God that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that God cannot be trusted, that echo from Eden that still resonates in the human soul, and we have to fight those voices. When I walk in that, I begin to withdraw myself from his presence. I avoid him, because who wants to hang around with someone that's always disappointed with you? That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, agree with your enemy on the way to court, lest you be taken before the judge and be found guilty. Always agree with your adversary on your way to court? What is he talking about? It's like an assumption of guilt that we're always guilty if there's ever a court case. What he's talking about is the courtroom of heaven. And when you are coming before the throne, the accuser of the brethren will try to accuse you, Revelation says, before the throne day and night. He's gonna, it's, it's not that he has access to the throne, it's that you do. And when you get near the throne, he will try to accuse you to get you to withdraw out of God's presence. So what God wants us to do is come boldly before the throne of grace. In order to do that, we have to be rooted and established in love because it is the love of God that gives us our identity as sons and daughters. I know who I am so I can come into my daddy's throne room and I can do business with my father. But if I feel like I'm a slave or a servant that is disappointing to a master as opposed to a son who is pleasing to a father, I will not go boldly before the throne of grace. Matter of fact, I'll stay on the outer court. And in so doing, I cut myself off from the provision to live the obedient, victorious life. So this is important. So even though we have an impartation of love, we need to grow in that love. We need to cultivate it. We need to be continually keeping ourselves consciously in the love of God. And you need to know how that works for you. The same is true for wisdom. There are impartations of the wisdom of God. God can give you an impartation of wisdom so that you get an upgrade in your ability to understand spiritual realities, even physical realities. Just as there are impartations of power and love, there are impartations of wisdom. And we don't think of it like that, but the fact is there is a biblical precedence for it, and that is how the Spirit of God operates. There is an impartation, an event, but then there's the process of cultivation. Now, we tend to think of wisdom as simply something we cultivate, that we're in an ongoing time, we're learning and we're learning and learning. But when we talk about impartations, it really falls within the realm of what we call revelation. We throw that term around, but biblical revelation is a real deal. And we need revelation. You see, this, the difference between cultivating through study and revelation is revelation starts with a conclusion and then you got to backfill it because God shows you something. Boom. You ever had an encounter with the Lord? You ever, when I say encounter, understand, I'm not talking about Jesus standing in front of you in bodily form. If that happens to you, great. Lay hands on me after service. 
But what I'm talking about is when the Spirit of God comes on you, you feel his presence, he ministers something to you, you know that there, this was a significant thing. This wasn't just your normal quiet time, but you have some type of encounter with God where you know there was something intimate happening, something was imparted to you. That's what I'm talking about in Connors where you're reading the word and all of a sudden in a moment you see a truth in the word you never saw before. It explodes and all of a sudden you spend the next few weeks unpacking that truth and chasing down all the little pathways that grow out of that thing. That is revelation. But that revelation must be followed by cultivation. Revelation starts with the truth and then you unpack it. Study, you you. Study yourself to a conclusion. Revelation starts with one. There have been plenty of times where the Lord has shown me something or I, I've been praying and all of a sudden I saw a vision and I told the Lord, Lord, I can't preach that because I, I have no scripture for that. And so then I gotta, I've got to anchor it in the word or this is just between me and Jesus because I'm not going to step out on something that I can't anchor in the word. My subjective experiences must submit to the objective word to keep us safe. But that doesn't negate the fact that the Bible is full of subjective experiences. If you were to pull the subjective experiences out of the structure of Scripture, it would collapse on itself. There would be no church. There would be no salvation. Just Jesus' life alone, the initial invasion of Jesus' life on planet Earth was a series of angelic visitations these encounters where a young woman became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand encounters with God, these experiences, these subjective experiences, encounters are scriptural, but we anchor them in the objective word of God. And so there's times where the Lord will show me something and I'll say, God, I, I, you're going to have to show me where that fits in the word. And I'm not sharing it until you do. And he'll begin to show it to me out of the word. So I have an impartation, but there needs to be followed up by this cultivation. God, what does this mean? How does this work? How does this fit with other things? And, and I, I like to refer to them as seasons, revelatory seasons, where God will begin to speak to me about something. And all of a sudden, it's like the Bible comes alive and with, with that subject. That template falls over it. And I begin to see that subject in every passage. And I'm chasing down these little pathways and unpacking it, writing and thinking and, and just blown away. And then, and when those happen, that truth becomes everything to you. You want to talk about that to everyone. Someone comes, you, you have this revelation on, on uh, what the labor was in the Old Testament, you know, the, the labor and the, the where people wash their hands and someone comes up, my marriage is in, in, on the rocks. The labor is your answer. You know, it's everything to you. And then over time, what God is speaking to you about in the moment begins to be part of the fabric of your overall theology. And that's how we grow in God. But this wisdom element is huge. Why am I talking about this? Because I feel this strong invitation from the Lord to us to enter into wisdom. That God is inviting us in to feast at wisdom's table. If you look in the book of Proverbs, I talked about the feminine psyche. Well, both wisdom and foolishness are referred to as feminine in Scripture. Now, husbands, I would be very careful bumping your wife this morning. 
okay? When I start unpacking this, okay, which one applies? But both wisdom and foolishness uh, are pictured as a woman in Proverbs. It says that wisdom stands in the city streets crying aloud, come, all who need wisdom, come and eat of my... It, it pictures that as a woman that has spread a feast in her house and is invite, inviting people to come in, that they can come in and eat of the feast that she's going to give them. She's, she's inviting people in. She's a virtuous woman. And then we see foolishness as this immoral woman in, in trying to seduce people to come into her house and eat of her wares. And it's pictured as an immoral woman trying to entice men into an adulterous relationship that will end up destroying their life. And that's the picture of wisdom and foolishness in Scripture. It's a fascinating thing. You see, the difference between what the Spirit of God wants to give us, wisdom and foolishness, primarily is this. At its base is this. Wisdom always thinks from a long-term perspective. Wisdom is not just looking at the action, it's looking at the consequences of our action. And it's extrapolating those actions out over a period of time and saying, what's going to be the end result of this? What's going to be the fruit of these decisions? Wisdom is always calculating that. Wisdom is looking at the long term, whereas foolishness is looking at the moment. Am I going to enjoy this in the moment? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's only looking at, will I enjoy this right now? I can't help. Whenever I begin to think about this subject, I think back to my teenage years when I was living on the street. I was the consummate biblical fool. I lived for the moment, and I was absolutely destroying my life. I would, if, if I wanted to do it right now, I'd wave all the consequences to the wind and I'd do it right then, and then I would pay. It would, the, the payday, would, man, I would have to pay. I'd lose my job and lose relationships, and next thing you know, I'm homeless. And it was just a mess because I was being a fool. So the foundation of these two mentalities, the Spirit of God is inviting us in, and he's wanting to invite us in to understand the consequences of our behavior. But it's not just a negative thing. He's wanting to show us how when we do this, there are, when we sow, we will reap. And so he wants to bring us into this process of cultivation that we can sow behavior now that's going to reap a tremendous benefit a little ways down the road, a little farther down the road, and generationally. And that is what wisdom is about. Scripture says that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Why? Because when we embrace the fear of the Lord, we begin to have an awareness of the consequences of our behavior. Because we understand that there is a God in heaven, the Lord of the harvest, who oversees the laws of the harvest. Galatians chapter five, it's, or Galatians chapter six, it's five or six, he says, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. If he sows to the flesh, from the flesh he'll reap destruction. If he sows to the spirit, from the spirit he'll reap eternal life. You see, it works both ways. We tend to look at that as only negative, but it works for the positive too. And Paul is warning us, listen, don't be deceived. 
God cannot, he will not, he absolutely cannot overlook the good that you do. If you make good decisions, God is going to make sure that you're rewarded because the Lord of the harvest is overseeing the laws of the harvest. You cannot help but reap good when you sow good. You say, well, man, I've gotten ripped off. I've tried hard and, and other people, they get around it and they, they take what was mine and I don't get promoted and I've, you know, all that. I'm telling you, you, over the long term, you cannot help it. The, the enemy may be able to win for, on the short term and God will allow that and use that to test your heart. But I'm telling you, based on the authority of the word of God and the character of God, that over time you will reap what you have sown. And when we really believe that, then we start to make good decisions. The fear of the Lord. I want you to think of that phrase, the fear of the Lord. We don't talk a lot about the fear of the Lord in this day and age. We talk about the love of God, God's affection towards us. And that love of God then becomes something that we re release back to him. The fear of the Lord, it has to do with our attitude towards him. And there's this tension in scripture between these, these two different uh, attitudes or uh, mindsets in our heart. We're to live between the love of the Lord, loving God, and fearing God. You say, well, pastor, how could we fear God and, and really be in love with him? Doesn't scripture say that perfect love casts out fear? You see, the fear of the Lord does not cause torment. It doesn't cause you to run from God. It causes you to run to him. It is a healthy respect, but it's deeper than respect. Because you can respect someone that you don't fear any consequences from. But the fear of the Lord does have this element that we have concerns about the consequences of our behavior. And so we understand in the fear of the Lord that when I do wrong, there will be negative consequences and I adjust my behavior. See, the fear of the Lord is based on the justice of God, that there is a God in heaven that is continually balancing the scales of human behavior. God cannot be mocked. Do not be deceived. What a man reaps or sows, he will reap. God is constantly up there balancing the scales. He is intimately involved in human affairs. He will reward those who do right, and he will discipline those who do wrong. Romans 13 tells us that that is the job of every authority figure. Anybody that's in authority, their marching orders from God is to reward those who do right and punish those who do wrong. Police officers, teachers, young people, your parents, everyone in authority, that is their job, to reward good behavior and punish bad behavior so that they can encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior. It's just logical. That's the marching orders God has given every authority figure. And God, as the ultimate authority figure, will not shirk that responsibility. When we believe that, that God is just, that he has a sense of justice far beyond what we have. But God is also all-knowing. We can't hide anything from him. Yesterday morning, we were crying out to God of, about the situation in our government, and just crying out and saying, God, we're asking, Lord, that you would expose corruption, that you would pull the veil off this stuff. Lord, we're asking, clean up our government. And as we did, Roger McKim said, Ho, oh, the Lord just spoke to me. Isaiah 29, 15. I had to write him last night. I said, did, did you know what that verse said before? He said, no. I want to read this to you. This was stunning to me. 
Isaiah 29, 15. This should put the fear of the Lord in you. Let me read it to you. And I, I was blown away because we were in the midst of praying that very thing. And listen to what the Lord just gave him an address. And he prays it out. And here's what it said. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing that should say to its maker, he did not make me, or the thing that for, formed say to him who formed it, he who has no understanding. It's talking about people hiding things. It was the Lord telling us, I'm, I'm on this thing. I'm going to expose things. I don't know about you, but man, a little bit of fear of the Lord came on me that morning. Because we're crying out, God, reveal corruption. Lord, reveal. And Roger, you know Roger. Oh, you know, the Lord spoke to me, Isaiah 29, 15. He pulls it up and reads it. And I'm like, oh. If I really believe that, I'm going to watch my behavior. Because you can't get around God. He sees everything. He's all-knowing. But he also is just, and he will balance the scales. Because as a good father, he wants to encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior. The opposite of the fear of the Lord in Scripture, Proverbs 28, 14, it says, uh, they who fear the Lord, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, I think it says. And they, uh, but then it says, but he who hardens his heart shall always fall into trouble. Deuteronomy 28, 14. It's juxtaposing the fear of the Lord over against the hardening of the heart. The fear of the Lord is always keeping in mind that God is watching and he's balancing the scales. He knows everything about every one of us. Now, the fact is, he's a loving father. And if your heart is in the right direction, he's not... He's not there's the phrase, God knows your heart. He knows your desires, the desires of your heart. But if we stubbornly pursue evil, thinking we're going to get away from it, get, get away with it, we have hardened our heart. And the beginning of the hardening of the heart is to ignore the consequences. It causes us to live in the short term and do foolish things. And it leaves tragedy in our wake. It's been absolutely heartbreaking for me the last few years. I'm now in my early 30s, and <laughs> no, I'm now in my mid-50s. I did have someone say to me the other day, wow, I thought you were a lot older. I thought you were in your late 60s, early 70s. And uh, I said, well, it's the gray, you know. I'm just glad to have hair. But he's the... Uh, that was not a reference to anybody in the room. Okay, the, uh, where, what was I talking about? Oh, it's been absolutely heartbreaking to me because I'm on Facebook, you know, you, Facebook's an, an, a wild thing, man. You're, you're getting to connect with people you knew years ago. And I've, I've reconnected with people that I used to do drugs with 30 years ago. Or 35 years ago, and it's, it's well, 30, 36, 37 years. Yeah, a long time ago, going on 40 years ago. And uh, it's just heartbreaking because I see some of them who never made it out. And I even see their posts, and it's still like they're in junior high. We're going to sneak behind the bathroom and smoke a cigarette. No, down with the man. You're 50 years old, dude, okay? 
get a life. You know, you're, I'm going I'm to show them. <laughs> I showed them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's tragic. People who are still holding on to that, that youthful rebellion. I mean, what, what happened at 20, it's, it's sad, but it's almost understandable. Their brain isn't fully formed yet. But when you're a 50-year-old fool, it is tragic. And I've watched some of my friends die. Some of my very close friends that literally drank themselves to death. They found them on the floor. I won't go into details, but they literally, they drank themselves to death. And it's tragic because they never came under discipline. They never came under the fear of the Lord. They never considered the long-term consequences. They're still buying the T-shirts that celebrated their rebellion. No one's going to tell me what to do. Well, how'd that work out for you? It's tragic. God wants to bring us into wisdom. He wants to invite us in. And the beginning of that is an understanding that God is intimately involved in human affairs. He is examining our behavior. And if you will do right in secret, he promises that he will reward you in the open. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's the threshold. And from there, we, we, we come under that thing and we, we have to admit, I need taught. I need someone to instruct me. I need someone to come alongside me and, and help me. I don't have it all in and of myself. That's the beginning of wisdom. James puts it this way in James chapter 3. The, hum, er, the, the humility that comes from wisdom is, first of all, pure. See, one of the first fruits of wisdom is humility. It, our heart is humbled because we realize, I don't have everything I need. I don't have the capacity to run my own life up here. I need the input from others, and I need the input from God. And that causes me to walk tender before the Lord, and God will begin to bring us into wisdom. I'm telling you, wisdom is calling to us and saying, I have, I have a feast spread to you. I believe the Lord wants us to come into a deeper wisdom. I believe he wants us to believe him for more revelation. I believe he wants to open up the book. And I believe that this wisdom that he wants to give us as a church has real-world implications in your marriage, in your family, and in your finances. I believe, I've had this sense lately of, of God wanting to give wisdom for business. Amen. He wants to show you how, what, what to do to, to, to recognize opportunities that you normally wouldn't see because you have wisdom. But we have to ask for that wisdom. And it first of all demands that we humble ourselves. We say, Lord, teach us. God, we want to be instructed. Wisdom stands in the street and calls out. All who need wisdom come in. Proverbs says that foolishness also stands, and it says she dresses herself like an immoral woman, and she goes out in the, the, the dark of the evening and waits for the young men to come by and tries to lure them into her house. Come, she said, my husband is on a long journey. I believe it's Proverbs 5 or 6. She says, come, my husband's on a long journey. He won't be home for many days. Let's drink deep of love till morning. She's saying, we're going to get away with it. There are no consequences. So make decisions in the short term. Decide what you want in the moment and don't consider the long-term consequences. 
And the Lord is wanting us to think for the long term. He wants us to walk in the fear of the Lord, to walk in that tension between the love of God and the fear of God. We talk a lot about the love of God, but I'm telling you, the fear of the Lord is an essential element of the mature Christian life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gives the two great motivators of his ministry. It's where he talks about the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given. And he says that the love of Christ constrains us. It's the love of Christ that pulls us, pulls on us to do the will of God. But then he says the fear, the, the fear of the Lord persuades, the terror of the Lord causes him to persuade men, be ye reconciled to God. He's saying that he's motivated by both the love of God and the fear of God. Those are not mutually exclusive. They're not, you don't have to choose which one you're going to walk in. We need to walk in both because a revelation of who he really is includes both. God loves you deeply and he wants to keep you from the consequences of foolish behavior. But he loves you enough and he honors the free will he has extended to you to allow you to make those decisions and there will be consequences. And when we understand that, when we understand that the same God who loves us sees everything about us, it'll cause us to begin to order our life in a different way. Let's go ahead and stand. I've had a real sense probably the last six months. I believe the next sweeping move of God is going to have, is going to carry with it an element of the fear of the Lord. That the next move is going to bring with it the fear of the Lord and deep repentance and a, and a, 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 a tremendous reverence for his word because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And whereas the last move brought a necessary correction of experiencing his love, of signs and wonders, the next one is going to bring a reverence for his word and the fear of the Lord. It's going to bring wisdom to the church. God wants to grow his people up and us to take our place. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. But if we're to be mature enough to do it, we've got to have the wisdom of God. Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask God that what we talked about this morning, Lord, would begin to take root in our hearts. Just put your hands up before the Lord. Lord, we're asking for that impartation of wisdom. Lord, we're asking for encounters with the fear of the Lord. Just keep your head bowed for a moment here. All throughout Scripture, men and women of God who were intimate with the Lord had encounters with the Lord in, in manners they weren't used to. Joshua, who knew the Lord intimately, had spent many days and nights under the, the flaming pillar of fire and the cloud, met the Lord on the plain before Jericho, and he didn't even recognize him. He was in a different form. John the Beloved, who laid his head on Jesus' chest, was arguably the most intimate with the Lord of all the disciples, saw the Lord in the book of Revelation, and was shook. 
because the Lord was revealing another facet of his character. Father, we're asking that you would reveal those other facets of your character. We want to go deeper. We want to go higher. Lord, we want everything that you have for us, Lord. And so, Lord, we understand that the first step is to humble ourselves. Lord, to walk in the fear of the Lord. God, that you're not, Lord, you're a loving father, but you're not a senile grandfather. You reward righteousness and punish disobedience. Lord, let that become a frame of reference we walk from, Lord. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.